to Media Democracy. It's a podcast about media, politics, and the politics of the media. I'm Tom Mills, as ever, and this is Dan Hines. Say hello, Dan. Hello! We've been away a couple of weeks. What's been going on? Quite exciting. Uh, media Democracy has gone mainstream, everybody. Dan, what's happened? Well, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago tomorrow, I think, as we record, um, Jeremy Corbyn gave a speech at the Edinburgh Television Festival outlining a set of proposals for reform of the UK media and communication system. And it would be an understatement, I think, to say that it was very warmly welcomed here. Um, it's the, it's really the first time I think we've seen a mainstream politician engage with the the real significance of the move towards digital. Um, and it's the first time that Corbyn has really set out some some really interesting ideas about how the media system might be democratised, how journalists might be um, freed up to do the work that they really want to do, and how the industry might be restructured to be more sustainable, uh, to provide both like valuable public information and also stable uh, employment for for people who work in that sector. So, you know, on the whole, I thought it was actually an amazing amazing contribution um and i do recommend anyone listening who's remotely interested if you are in fact if you're remotely interested in media and politics and the politics of the media um you are you're going to be listening to this podcast and you should go and um read the transcript of the speech i think it's yeah this this speech is for you if this podcast is for you then the speech is for you it's very much um in the same spirit and it's online so um you know it's on YouTube and I don't know possibly other places, but also the full the full speech is online, so to definitely have a read. Um, I mean, and what, you... one final thing I would say on this as well is that I, you know, I'm, I'm, I imagine that quite a lot of our listeners are active in the Labour Party and active in constituency Labour Party um, politics, and it, the proposals for a network of regional and local news cooperatives, it, I think, are very important because. They start to describe a way that um, the the political economy of, of particular places um, can be brought into much sharper focus and can begin to be understood by mass constituencies much better through the actions of journalists working for these media co-ops. Local local and regional news in the UK for a long time has been in a very, very unhealthily close relationship with local, both local political elites and local economic elites. And you think particularly in terms of the land housing nexus and its relationship with local councils. And that the coverage of that sector has been incredibly supine. If, if we're going to understand the places where we live, we're going to understand how we're going to house our, ourselves and our children and our children's children in the future... We've got to understand how the how the, the local land market works, and we're not going to do that uh, with a corporate press that's dependent on advertising from developers, from estate agents, and so on. So, if you are interested in local politics, the, I cannot I cannot sort of overstate the importance of these these news corps potentially uh, for changing how how the economy works in in Britain. It's worth saying, I think that. The proposals, and there were many other important proposals there, are, were presented by Corbyn as a set of ideas for reform of the media rather than a set of policies. So 
insofar as people listening are in the Labour Party, I think it, you know, we'd really encourage you to pick up and run with some of this agenda. Um, Dan and I have a lot of um, ideas, obviously, around me to form ourselves, which are along the same lines, which we're going to be um, carrying forward as well. And it's it's important that I think you know we we pick up with um, what sort of intervention that Corbyn's made, which um, you know is is strikingly. Um, I mean, in a sense, they're not radical proposals, but. Um, compared to the sorts of discussions, traditional sorts of discussions around the media and around the sort of policy around the world that surrounds the media are, um, you know, we would encourage people to pick up um, these ideas and run with them and take them forward in the Labour Party. If you are Labour Party members, I think that's really important. Dan and I will continue to discuss them on the show and uh, write about them, and we hope that you will support that. Um, but, you know... Um, Produce resolutions in your Labour Party, have people along to speak, uh, discuss uh, media democracy, because, you know, ultimately it's not just about these local media co-ops, but a whole community of infrastructure, which, as Dan says, you know, should serve as, um, we think, as the, uh, the backbone of a wider political and social transformation. So I think, you know, as, a, as an integral part of... Um, a necessary political project for a more equal and 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 just society, and I think it, it's good to see um, this element of policy, you know, being being more central to the political conversation. Um, did you see Dan any of the responses from the media to the speech? Um, the I saw that Alan Rusbridger tweeted that he thought on balance it was quite good, which mm. I thought was interesting. Um, the uh, there was I thought very little in the way of of serious responses to it in the mainstream, and this is another thing I'd say to people listening is that you're not going to hear these ideas discussed at length in the media. The no. the way that the media talks about itself and its its sort of its internal dynamics, how how different media institutions relate to one another and so on, is incredibly tightly policed. The only time I've been told explicitly that I couldn't write something was when I wanted to write in a certain national newspaper about a certain national broadcaster. And I was told I could not do so. That I had to remove certain sections from a piece. It's the only time that completely avert censorship essentially was sort of imposed on me. So the idea that they're going to respond like in an open-handed way and say, oh, these are interesting ideas, we should talk about them. It's just for the birds. The only people who are going to discuss these ideas are going to be, I think, in the, in the Labour Party. Um, uh, as, as it were, a first step, and then in the broader in the broader public, because the media don't want to talk about this. The media are quite happy to go quietly bankrupt, because they're having a huge laugh while they do it. You know, they're all getting paid, they're all get all having fun. They don't really care about the media <laughs> um, or its public functions. Um, so the only people who are going to care really are the people who who are ultimately are going to rely on it in the future, which is everyone else. Um, I hope that's. I hope that hasn't struck an unduly cynical tone. But there have. I mean, there have. You know, there have been interesting responses. There, there are articles in um, some of the online sources, like the New Socialists have written a piece about it and so on. Um, there was reporting on the speech, wasn't there? Um, yeah, yeah, there was. I mean, most of it focused on the aspect of the social class aspect, um, which was, you know, such a, a very small and completely uncontroversial 
element of the speech, um, which, you know, the media just went absolutely apoplectic about. Um, I mean, it's almost But that like... was sort of a, you know, return to the Owen Jones pylon that had been going on for the last, you know, intermittently for the last year or so. So, you know, that, that was kind of silly. I mean, we don't... I, I would quite like to go into, like, if we had time to go into a bit more detail on uh, the media response to the speech, but I don't know how fruitful that will be. I mean, in summary, I think we can say that uh, the, the the Liberals didn't like the idea of democratising the BBC, the private sector didn't like the idea of um, democratising their editorial appointments, and everybody quite liked the idea of taxing Google and Facebook because they're running off with their advertising revenue. So, yeah, um, yeah. in that respect, and of course, the right just went completely mad and said that um, Corbyn was trying to control the BBC and the press, and it was part of a sinister um, authoritarian plot by the left. But so all of the responses were exactly as one might have imagined, and it would have been interesting to go into a bit more detail. But um, we don't have time because we have a very long interview to play you uh, this week in which we discuss the new statesman with Joe Kennedy, the author of Authentocrats. Um, by way of introduction, Dan, why did we do this? Well, it's just um, every year we do a reading series, don't we? Last year we did The Sun um, and this year we did The New Statesman. I think they make a very good pair. Um, yeah. I managed to read three copies of the of the New States because I kept getting the, the week that we were doing it wrong. So I felt I felt by the end of, of August that I was sort of marinated in, in the New Statesman in a way that I hadn't been for a very long time. Um, but I you know, I think I think the kids are gonna love it. I think it's a very interesting chat. Joe's a, Joe's a very interesting got a very interesting line in it. He's written a book, Authentocrats, which is on repeated books, which you should all buy. Um, and I think in a way he kind of he led us gently around to the idea that perhaps it's time to put an end or put down euphoric Corbynism and move on, which I think that's an inter- it was an interesting kind of trajectory that we were, that we went on in the. That's right. We sort of end up saying farewells to the centrists, don't we? We do. We do. It's it's a sort of it's a bit of a a lingering farewell because obviously you know our podcast was bo- born out of. Um, a, a certain exuberance, the possibility that, that was opened up by the 2017 election. Um, but everything must pass, and we have important work to do. Uh, final point before we, we roll the tape on the interview. Um, Tom and I have written a pamphlet on media reform as part of a, a, a series that has been commissioned by Open Democracy um, which will be available at the World Transformed, and will be it'll be there's a printed version of it. So if you are interested in discussing media reform, um, lo- you know, in in meetings or in you know public groups, I hope that um, that will be a useful resource for you. So, shall we roll tape? Let's do it. So we're still in August, and that means only one thing at Media Democracy. It means we're going to do one of our reading series. We always give publications their best possible chance. So last year, Tom and I read The Sun in August and discovered (laughs) that it was quite thin um, and full of stories that they'd culled from Instagram. 
Uh, looking back, <laughs> that might have been something to do with the fact that it was August. Um, and we don't norm, we didn't bother reading it uh, any other time. Um, this year, this August, we've chosen to turn our laser-like intelligence to the New Statesman, the weekly magazine of the centre-left, um, the go-to spot for Westminster gossip, um, and originally the House Journal of Fabianism, which we'll come back to perhaps in a bit. Um, unlike last year, it hasn't just been Tom and I that have been wading through copy in print. Uh, we're very lucky to be joined this week by Joe Kennedy. Joe, welcome to the show. Hello, Dan. How are you doing? Uh, very well indeed. Very well. I'm amazed that I haven't said anything. I haven't stumbled yet in that in that soliloquy. But Joe, That's you are of time for that, Dan. Don't uh, worry. Now you've t- you've walked all over my smooth tones, Tom. Um, <laughs> One minute is long enough. <laughs> Joe is the author of um, Authentocrats, which is published by Repeater Books, and which looks at uh, a number of um, subjects which are adjacent to, if not exactly in the ballpark of the New Statesman um, and its various luminaries. Um, Joe, let's start, if we may, with just your sort of first impressions of the magazine. We, we, if, if I'm honest, I tend to see the New Statesman in fragments on Twitter. Mm, um, same. And it, and it, it sort, of t- some, sort of boils down to um, the Helen and Stephen show, to some extent. Stephen Bush and Helen Lewis are by far the most prominent. And then we can talk a bit about their sort of duopoly and their different uh, sort of profiles. But to actually, to, to, to sort of discover that it's a magazine <laughs> with, like, magazine-type features was a bit of a shock. Um, but what were your impressions, having had a chance to sit down with it for a little while? A, c- a couple of things. Uh, the, fir- the first one was when I put my money into the machine in Smith's and it gave me £4.40 change. <laughs> and I got really angry, worrying that the last 10p wasn't going to come out because I thought, I don't want to pay £4.60 for the <laughs> new states when I've already paid £4.50 for it. And the second thing, which always happens, is I think the new statesman feels really nice in your hand. It's got a lovely weight to it. Then the fourth, the third thing, sorry, is that I, I despise the kind of paper they use in it. It's scratchy. And the fourth thing is, the thing that always really makes me realise I've made a mistake when I buy it, is I absolutely hate the caricatures of the... Um, of the various writers at the Statesman, from Jason Cowley to George Eaton to Helen Lewis, and now Stephen Bush seems to have a caricature as well. Um, we could talk about why they're so ir- irritating later on. I haven't quite positioned it in my head. Um, but the, the Statesman was what it always is, which is a kind of series of provocations to, to mild, if not apoplectic, fury. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> We've not gone um, into the uh, substance yet, but, but so far... The, the aesthetics have made you quite angry. Yeah, and I, I think the aesthetics are quite important, actually. I'm, uh, it, it's, uh, I, I sound flippant when I say it, but I do mean there's something about the aesthetics of the whole paper um, which are meant to kind of port you into a particular kind of political world or political life world, I, I, I think. Um, and I'm just trying... It's, it feels like it's on the tip of my tongue what that world is, and it seems important. But certainly the caricatures function in a different... But sort of, a similar but different way to the way caricatures function in in right wing uh, media. The right wing media uses very uh, exaggerated caricatures of, of its writers, 
um, to say, hey, these guys are fun. You know, they, they don't mind. Uh, they'll go totally over the top. Statesman ones are doing something different. I don't know what it is. Anyway. That's interesting. Um, think, looking at the one, there's one of um, Amelia Tate in this, in this read on page five. And she looks like a sort of almost like a 2D version of one of those um, incredibly kitsch little sculptures that one gets of mermaids and <laughs> shepherdesses and things like that. And you're right, it's kind of, it's sort of moving completely in the opposite direction from right-wing caricature, which is saying, hey, Tacky's a bit of a card. Look, he's got, you know, he's got, like, yes. strong, strong eyebrows, and his nose looks a bit like a swastika or something. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, you're right, there's a sort of soft focus feel to this. Yeah, they're kind of washed out, aren't they? Yeah. And I, I'm trying to work out what that means. I'm, I'm not sure I can do the semiotics it, of that. Are they treated at 8 o'clock on a Friday night, but... I think my like, readers aren't actually going to know what we're talking about, are they? Because hardly anyone's actually going to read the New Statesman. Well, that's, um, you know, I think that... It, it looks like, so for readers, it looks, they look a bit like sort of, like, um, pastel-y chalk drawings, don't they? They do. I was a bit shocked when I saw George Eaton on YouTube and Navarra, and he didn't look anything like the smooth features of his character. <laughs> he doesn't, I've seen him in real life, um, he looked, I, I think. A much more Orden-esque figure, I thought. Like... Ordinesque, wow! What he, he's he's changed in the last few years. He, he was um, just—he looked like he'd been left out in the rain. Anyway, <laughs> so um, let's begin with just some sort of background on the New Statesman because I wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't look up um, the New Statesman on Wikipedia before we started talking. Um, <laughs> and and the, you know, the first thing to say about the New Statesman is that it was conceived in infamy and born in sin. In insofar as it was founded as as a sort of house journal of Fabianism, the first editor was a close associate of Sidney and Beatrice Webb, um, the, uh, the sort of the founders of Fabianism, and as such, I think it's important to stress that there never was a golden age in New Statesman. It's never been good. Um, <laughs> it was originally intended as a sort of vehicle for refined and aristocratic socialism. A tendency, I think, is reinforced in the 30s when it comes under the gravitational pull of Keynes and the Bloomsbury movement. Mm. Um, and that's not to say that uh, there aren't important um, ideas being developed by the liberal reformers of the 30s. It's not to say that there's, that there's nothing to learn from them, but I think it's important to stress just how like, alien to any kind of egalitarian tradition um, Fabianism and Bloomsbury and that sort of Fabian-Bloomsbury alliance were. I mean, they absolutely despised the working class. Um, oh, absolutely, yeah. And thought they were entirely incapable of self-government. Um, and that, hey presto, it was up to um, the enlightened, more, more enlightened members of the property class uh, to take up the burden of rule. And I think that is a that is a strand of of left or self-identifying left um, politics, which is is recurrent in Britain. It's completely unsubconscious. It fits in very neatly and gets along quite well with Toryism. Um, and it is utterly reprehensible. Um, it's and such a degraded version of it now, though, isn't it? If you, if you think that. I, I, for all of their kind of intellectual or, or, or political sins, Virginia Woolf, for example, is one of my favourite novelists, admittedly for her 
politics, she's a bit of a guilty pleasure, but at least in the 1930s, right, was... it was the vehicle of Virginia Woolf rather than of Helen Lewis. Right, there was greatness there, wasn't there? Exactly. And, you know, Keynes, for all his um, sort of unabashed imperialism, was a brilliant sort of economist. There's yeah. no sort of escaping that, that like his um, uh, extraordinary acuity of mind. Um, and... I mean, you see the kinds of the pantheon now that feature in the New Statesman, and they are people like Steven Pinker um, and, and others who are sort of held up as these sort of um, triumphant figures. Yeah, we can come to the uh, the A list of intellectuals later um, once we once we dive into the the material. Yeah, the, I just wanted to say on um, sort of history of the New Statesman, Dan. You said it's never been good. It has gone through sort of different political iterations, hasn't it? So the they then they have their sort of pretty hardcore Stalinist stage, don't they? Yes, like I think. After... Which is, again, is I think of a piece with its with its Fabian origins. I mean, like the, the Webs loved Stalin; they thought he was terrific um, because they were maniacs and power worshiping maniacs at that. Anyway, um, no, and I was perhaps being too quick. Um, there have been moments where New Statesman has been terrible, and there are occasions. You know, there are. There's no question that they've published interesting people, and they've they've published interesting work over the years. Um, they've also published some appalling people. They really have, haven't they? Which we'll, I'm sure, come to. Um, but I think you know Peter Willby, um, who now has a column on the magazine. Um, I think under his editorship, um, there was a um, a fairly sort of good faith effort to articulate um, a left politics um, somewhat against the grain of, of Blairism and Brownism at the time. Um, that said though, Dan, was that the same period as they had the sort of um, pro-war left gang sort of gravitating around the New Statesmen? Well, that's interesting cause because I, they've I... also had like this kind of neoconservative leanings as well, like people like John Bew and... I think Shira's May has been published there. He's a, there are a couple of sort of British neoconservatives who are now based at um, King's College. And was Nick Cohen ever at the New Statesman? Maybe he wasn't. I don't think he was. Now, I believe... He kind of should have been, though, at one stage. I I'm believe... surprised he hasn't passed through its uh, pages at some stage. But, yeah. It's definitely had, it's definitely had that um, sort of pro-war left kind of... Um, element as well, hasn't it? Like that, in more I, contemporary period. I think that's right. I mean, I think... Didn't they publish the Euston Manifesto? Did they publish it? I thought that was I probably published. should have um, checked that before we um, started recording, shouldn't I? Yeah, possibly. Um, I mean, I think that um, George Eaton was a, was a signatory to the Euston Manifesto. Um, George Eaton, yeah, we can come to him. And I think that he was hired by Jason Cowley, who had <laughs> been literary editor under Wilby. Anyway, this is all a bit um, inside baseball, isn't it? Um, I'm glad to announce, by the way, that uh, the Houston Manifesto was indeed published by the New Statesman in 2006. It feels like a New Statesman document, doesn't it? I mean, no, it, it, it's one of those things where even if it hadn't been spiritually, it would have been. Um, As I mentioned, do you think we should sort of mention, in case for people who don't know what the Houston Manifesto is, because it's a bit, we're getting into sort of political geek territory here. Joe, do you want to um, take a run at that? I'm not sure I want to be the person who explains the, the Houston Manifesto. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I can have that blood on my hands. Let me do it. Basically, um, there were a group of people who um, 
who, who convinced that the Iraq war was a good idea and they supported it. Some of them who, who were liberals, some of whom had a background more on the radical left, um, who became increasingly dis- disillusioned with the, with the opposition to the war and, and, and then assumed a sort of, um, I suppose, anti-kind of stop the war coalition kind of politics, which was then going to be sort of anti-war and anti-terrorism and a sort of, um, I guess, anti, yeah, anti-totalitarian politics, basically. Do you think that's fair? Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that the, it, it kind of shifts the emphasis or attempts to shift the emphasis of, of the left in, in the noughties to, you know, to be on the left means to oppose whatever is taken to be, to be authoritarian, right, rather than any real kind of redistributive uh, program. Um, so it's kind of extreme of muscular liberalism, really, isn't it? Yeah, so definitely. I mean, and sort of like, yeah, sort of dipping into leaning towards neoconservative ideas. But yeah, the, mm. that weird period, I suppose, where you had um, kind of former Marxists or people still professing to be Marxists and liberal interventionists, and I guess yeah, out to the right, you, you end up sort of merging into the um, the neoconservatives. Um, yeah, well, basically Nick Cohen. I mean, the people will know Nick Cohen, and that that was his kind of political background. And I think I don't know whether he was a signatory, but David Aronovich comes from very similar sort of um, uh, political trajectory. Can, can I just say two things about the Houston Manifesto, which I think are very important to think about what the statesman is now? Yeah. Um, the first is that the Houston Manifesto is a kind of moment. Um, the kind of beginning of the apotheosis of analogy as a particular tool. It's this period which has not gone away, in which saying that a thing is like something else becomes a kind of political trump card. So it, it, the comparisons that were being made around the time of Houston were between intervention in, in Iraq and, and um, a kind of Orwellian intervention in Spain in the 1930s, as those, mm. those two things could be considered to be the same thing. Um, the other thing is that the Houston Manifesto became, I think, it is also the beginning of a kind of trashing of, of supposedly metropolitan elites for their kind of numby-pumby desire not to be in wars. Um, and of course, the Houston Manifesto was an attempt to kind of critique the supposed metropolitan elite left, but it in itself was the product of a metropolitan elite sort of left. Um, and those two things that kind of like attempt to understand the world through analogy bad analogy and the attempt to kind of critique the metropolitan left from the position of the metropolitan left that kind of where the new statesmen are at is at now yeah um, so those two things would be quite fundamental for me so maybe there is a you know that's a historical moment that he's chasing down in any analysis of it yeah no that's that's interesting actually i mean it, people have become sort of yeah possessed with this kind of idea of uh yeah, the problem with the left is it has these sort of sets of values which, um, you know, just aren't connected with traditional left concerns or whatever. Um, and that definitely comes out of that, um, that kind of. But the, the other thing is the sort of bad faith arguments that, that, that emerge from the Houston Manifesto crowd, you know, and like taking things out of context, like trying to present arguments on the basis of this yeah. very sort of hardline understanding and also the sort of um, this kind of politics of purity, which is one of the things that gets sort of targeted at contemporary Corbynism. But 
at the same time as there are these sort of accusations of um, yeah affiliations and somebody becomes beyond the par because they said X in the company of so and so. Um, at the same time, so there's a sort of you know smearing around association and particular people becoming quickly beyond the pale, um, which is obviously a sort of purist kind of politics. At the same time as kind of claiming that this is a sort of self righteous you know, puritanical political movement, which I just find, I think it's just a very odd thing that's going on at the moment. But you're, you're right, you can see that, all of that in kind of embryonic form of the Euston Manifesto. And actually, a lot of the kind of political meltdowns around Corbynism, for me, seem familiar from um, the sorts of people who were, yeah, in the kind of um, orbit of the Euston Manifesto and, yeah. the, and, and Harry's Place, as it was called, which I don't know, maybe it's still going. but Absolutely, um, yeah. I mean, the other thing that that was very prominent in the Use of Manifesto era, and which still has left legible mark on New Statesmen, is the mobilisation of the rhetoric of enlightenment. Um, there was a mm. great deal of talk mm. about Western values, about rationality, about secularism, um, and about the the kind of the sense that these were under attack from postmodernism or from radical Islam. From like an you know an anti enlightenment force, um, which now like it's one of its one of the strap lines on the cover is enlightened thinking in dark times. It is, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You know, which is an incredibly like presumptuous thing to slap on your magazine. <laughs> like you think you think that you'd you'd wait for someone else to say that rather than just claiming it for yourself as a um, as a as a sort of badge of self identification. Um, but yeah, that very easy kind of appropriation of uh, of the historical enlightenment and the kind of conscripting it to service in American expansionism um, that was done with this real... Like, I've never seen people submitting to a global superpower with such a sort of performance of, of like intellectual bravery. It's mm, like, absolutely, yeah. Look, look, how, look how outspoken brave we're being by siding with the most powerful military... Um, that the world has ever seen. It was it was and, a really peculiar sort of process, um, and that's it, isn't it? That's that's such a vital thing because it, the that kind of "I'm so brave" kind of rhetorical pose is is co opted from the right, isn't it? I mean, I think that we've seen the right doing that going back to at least the eighties, the seventies, the culture wars in America. This idea that you are. In fact, to, to Powell's Rivers of Blood speech, of course, begins with that, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for saying this, so aren't yeah. I brave? Um, is a, is a, you know, that, that's a kind of foundational moment in that, I think. Um, yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Um, so, so there we have it. Um, maybe the Peter Wilby era wasn't, uh, wasn't the land of milk and honey that I thought. Um, I'm surprised that they did publish the use of manifesto, but um, but it clearly there was you know. Have they gone down in your estimation? Well, I just I mean my recollection of the use of manifesto it was just sort of put online, you know, and then it obviously sort of spread out into comments as and it sort of like it's interesting it was an interesting thing because it it also seemed to mesh very closely with a lot of people's midlife crises. Um, a lot of middle-aged men sort of found renewed vigour in this sort of romantic identification with themselves and George Orwell. As you say, the idea that like the Ameri- the American um, 
101st Airborne was somehow a reincarnation of the um, uh, of the International Brigades in the Civil War. Um, it's really kind of weird, sort of uh, an attempt at historical reenactment that was going on. Um, but um, that was then. This is now. Um, there are, as I say, there are sort of remnants of that era, as you've said as well. There are remnants of that era um, in in the magazine, but. Should we look now in a little bit more detail um, at one of the, the cover article this week? Let's get in. Um, so, by chance, this week's lead, and we're looking at the 31st and 6th September edition, um, is How Politics Turned Toxic, From Brexit Rage to Labour's Civil War, Why Our National Conversation Went Sour, by Helen Lewis, who is, I think, Deputy editor of the New Statesman. Um, She's probably their, yeah, their best known thinker, as you mentioned earlier. She said, "I say thinker, writer." With, <laughs> with, um, with Stephen Bush. Stephen Bush. I so we've got not... Stephen Bush, he, and he's sort of like he's fairly well liked on the left, doesn't he? George Eaton, and then uh, and Helen, who Helen, I mean. I, she's she's kind of like a bit of a hate figure, isn't she? On on the left, I think. Well. She is, and I mean, this leads us to a, a sort of um, a question about how we we look at this article, um, because she does come in for an awful lot of um, static online. Yeah, um, there's no question about that. But before we talk about Helen, perhaps we should talk a little bit about Stephen. A couple of weeks ago, Stephen wrote a long piece on um, whether the Labour Party is going to split. Um, yeah, and it was you know I think it was an example of his his work and why I think he does have quite a good reputation um, among people who don't necessarily share his politics in that he just went and asked lots of people um, their opinion about something um, and wrote up what they said with um, with a degree of you know transparency I guess you might say and clarity. Um, but what was striking about the piece was that his his sort of his sphere of expert knowledge is actually a, labor, a part of the Labour Party that's no longer in charge and is never likely to be in charge again. Um, and this raises a really kind of important question about what the New Statesman is for in that it was it has sort of grown up alongside the Parliamentary Labour Party as was. Um, it takes its coordinates from um, the Parliamentary left to a very considerable extent. And the world has moved on. Um, yeah. And they, they, have, they have very little purchase on what's going on. And, and, and it, it appears very little interest in what's going on um, mm. in the current leadership of the Labour Party. Much less in the, in the, the, the party in the rest of the, of the country. Um, there is a sort, of, there's a sort of concern with what's going on, isn't there? But there's not an interest. I mean, yes, the, I mean the, the Lewis piece, which we're going to get into, I mean, a lot of it really is about um, Corbyn, isn't it, or the, the Corbynism, if you like, and uh, and um, and uh, you know the sort of populist right and all of the, all of these things that um, that, that worry um, centrists. Well, so it's not like it's, yeah, it's not like they're not they're not interested in the sense that they're concerned, yeah, aren't they? But no, they're you're just right. they're they worried they're, about it. There's no intellectual curiosity. But yeah, they don't think that there's anything there to be interested in, as it were, at, you know, at the level of ideas. Stephen um, Bush, though, the reason people seem more receptive to him is I think he's 
he he will talk to people around Corbyn. He's not the kind of person, as far as I can see, who's interested actually in political ideas particularly. He is. He's like a good version of Nick Robinson, you know, the, the sort mm. of embedded reporter. But whereas Nick Robinson has much more conservative instincts, um, it seems to me, like Stephen Bush is sort of, yeah, he's sort of a centrist Robinson who's, 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 who's comfortable talking to people on the left in a way that probably a lot of the embedded, more committedly Westminster journalists maybe aren't, I think. But, you know, I, I don't get the sense from Stephen Bush that he's, particularly in, he's interested in what drives Corbynism as a movement but he's not he doesn't seem particularly interested in policy does he no okay. not at all not at all um, I, I have a bit of a theory about about Stephen Bush um and it and it comes from if, if you recall once upon a time and even now in fact it was very fashionable for British liberals to find Tories who they could uh, say that they liked um in order to be seen to be magnanimously liberal and I feel a bit like that when I hear people on the left talking about Stephen Bush, because it, it seems almost kind of, I'm not going to say performative, because I, I want a more precise use of that word, but, but when people say they like Stephen Bush, it seems sometimes because people need to be seen to be saying that there is a new statesman journalist who's <laughs> all right. Um, and and I, I don't find him offensive particularly, but I think you're right. Uh, he is essentially a lobby journalist who is, sometimes, who is, is to some extent out of his depth uh, when he is tasked with dealing with ideas rather than um what somebody said to somebody else um but it is, yeah I, I think that bush is a, uh, probably a nice man but a, an overrated journalist um, well i think the thing is is he's been compared to people who are not who are really not very good at all so um you know he he has an intellectual kind of honesty that is kind of rare and, is, and professionalism that's quite rare amongst his peers isn't it well, so I think as well. Like I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that I think he ha he's he's adept at, at, at sort of describing the sort of moment by moment jujitsu of political maneuvering in a way mm. that is like I mean, I, he's quite I find quite enjoyable. Um, so it's not it's not entirely that he's like the the new statesman writer that you you can kind of sign up to. To show how broad-minded you are, um, I think he does something which is interesting in that he will. You don't fool me, Dan. I see, I, I see what you're doing here. He you know, he will <laughs> he'll sort of describe tensions within political parties in a way that is obviously informed by you know an understanding, albeit an understanding of a, a very kind of a, an elite model of of politi how political parties are structured. Um, mm. But um, but you're right. He's not he's not overly interested in, in policy. And he, I can't imagine him ever writing the kind of article that Helen Lewis has written and treated us with this week, um, which is a very broad question, how politics turned toxic. Mm. Um, and she has plenty of um, words to, to get to her explanation. Joe, yeah. were you convinced by her? Did, you, did, you she, did she win you over? So I'm going to be perhaps slightly surprising here and say that I think that it is in some ways a better article than others that I've seen recently on, on comparable topics. So I don't know if either of you saw it, but in the Guardian Review maybe three or four weeks ago, uh, there was a Michiko Kakitani article on post-truth. Did anyone see that? No, no I, I, don't, I don't think I did read that, actually. I, well, Kakitani is the kind of... Um, 
most lauded book critic at the New York Times um, and an incredibly influential figure in American literary culture and should perhaps continue to write about fiction because the Horatio Post-Truth, which was excerpted from the book, was one of the most banal things I've ever read and it seems to come to the conclusion that truth has been subverted by the, 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 the internet. Um, and, and, and Lewis, I think, is actually a little bit more ruminative in, in this piece than I expected her to be. Um, but at the same time, whenever she gets close to real culprits, like potentially the, the BBC <laughs> or the New Statesman or the Guardian, she actually she turns away. It's almost like she's realised something and then not being able to kind of handle that point. Now, I think that I just want to kind of refer over to your, your book, Tom, because uh, my favourite thing about it is that it, it, it sort of does away in some senses with the concept of BBC bias and actually says that, you know, bias it implies at least that bias is completely the wrong optic for understanding what's going on with the BBC. Um, and, and Lewis actually starts to say, well, we should stop talking about bias because there are structural issues that make the BBC take up particular positions and then she just doesn't want to consider them yeah. in this piece. Um, it's... Uh, in, in that sense, it's an incredibly intellectually dishonest article, but but it's the one in which I've seen her actually show some intellectual metal much more than in, in other instances, I think. I, I had a similar sort of feeling, actually. It's kind of... I've got it in front of me now, so I don't know if people can sort of hear me turning pages and things. I mean, it, what was interesting about it is the the amount of points, like you say, that she starts to make these kind of concessions which you wouldn't expect her to make or to refer to things which actually, if you're going straight from the sort of who killed truth sort of songbook, you mm. wouldn't really be, be going for. So, um, so for example, she says at, at one stage about the BBC that, um, you know, this is a complex subject to engage in online particularly. It revolves around and, it, and resolving the problems with the BBC means, quote, sweeping organizational changes um and then what she says is oh but the problem here is that there's a focus online with laura Koonsberg, which you know is obviously correct um to some degree mm. but what she doesn't do there it, and then at another stage she says obviously i picked out the bbc stuff right but she says um it's entirely correct to note that the printed press is dominated by the right and that overtly socialist voices struggle to get a hearing on the bbc when their opposite numbers do not mm. right but then what she says is, but the, his words, she's talking about Corbyn here, are designed to signal to his supporters they do not need to listen to the Times' reporting on X, Y, or Z, or whatever. So she kind of says, okay, there's this, this valid source of critique of these media organisations. And she kind of concedes that, but then she wants to say, oh, you know, th th that's not why people are angry. Because actually, if you look at what they say, they're just pissed off with Laura Koonsberg. And then there's mm -hmm. this sort of assumption that, oh, really, what, what Corbyn's trying to do here is exactly the same as what Trump's trying to do. So Corbyn's not interested in trying to resolve these problems. He's not interested in talking about these institutions. It's basically a cynical political manoeuvre to sort of, you know, whip up his fan base. Um, I, I, I saw all of that. And, and the thing is, uh, while agreeing with you and agreeing with the kind of meat of what Corbyn is saying, I also felt that, that when she does identify something there, which is that I, I felt like that speech was to some extent Corbyn playing to the canary and squirt box and, and, and so on into a particular kind of Corbynism which does want there to be individual and kind of nameable culprits 
sometimes. Um, and, and actually what I would rather have seen him do would, would say, you know, kind of stick to this kind of institutional issue. Um, I mean, it, it just doesn't provide as good a headline, does it? And, and in the end, what, what he's done there is kind of throw meat to the, the kind of centrist columnists who want to be able to compare him to Donald Trump, I, I, I think, for me. Well, I don't think that there's any kind of way of talking about the media as an institution where that won't be the response from the media. I mean, yeah. Corbyn definitely didn't name any particular journalists. And in terms of uh, the one thing he did do was talk about selective use of Vox Pops at the beginning. Um, but, you know, I mean, for me, the, the thing is that, I mean, I don't think the, the focus on individual journalists is at all uh, useful. And I don't think, um, you know, the, the, the idea of, of, of personal bias being exposed is, is, is particularly useful either. I think it's sort of understandable in that what you tend to have is people with a large profile tend to get personally attacked. Um, but, the, I mean, my issue with this article really is um, that, yeah, the... The thing is, you can look at angry expressions of anything online and then say, OK, that delegitimizes the issue um, out of which that anger kind of arises. And for mm. me, that's kind of the problem here. I mean, the, 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 the question she raises is, why is it? Why are people so angry? So mm. the, the, on the, it says boiling point. Why is everyone so angry all the time? Yeah. Now, that seems to me to be a different sort of question. Why is everyone so angry to what has happened to... Um, conversations. Why does politics seem to be personalised within these um, mm. within these spaces? Right. So there, yes, there are different definitely. things I think we could talk about in terms. Of, and and to be fair, she does mention these things. You know, um, it's not like she's not talking about the sort of political changes we've been through. It's just like you say, she sort of dips into them and then and then pulls away again. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I, and and that's where I think there, there's something. A kind of interesting question comes up where we kind of flip around. Why is everyone angry so all the time? And ask why is the political centre behaving in this kind of weirdly, abjectly civil way, um, or, or attempting this sort of, this sort of failed civility, passive aggression maybe is a, a better term. But um, and and I think all you can come up with really is that these people like this whole collection of journalists who kind of hover in between the, the centre-left and the centre-right are traumatised. They're politically traumatised. They they had the crowning moment of kind of um, moderate achievement in Obama and straight away, and immediately after that, they have it, its precise opposite. Um, there's, a lot uh, of, um, there's a lot of American stuff mixed in with Britain here, isn't there? Absolutely. And very yeah. little discussion of Europe. I did notice that, like, because she goes on a long time. Um, it's it's very little discussion yeah. of um, any European politics, really, unless I've forgotten something. They are fixated, this group of journalists, and, and their kind of their political counterparts with, with America, aren't they? Um, they were the exact people who, who kind of, uh, what was his name, the strategist who, who had Meliband had in for the 2015 election, was it David Axelrod? Oh, that rings a bell, yeah. Yeah, there were kind of people who thought that was a good idea. There were kind of people who thought that uh, Obama's electoral, getting elected model was an eternal one and an infinitely transferable one. Um, they're the kind of people who don't see anything ludicrous or problematic about Hillary, Hillary Clinton. Um, 
and and I think that, that there is this kind of fixation with America. You can see they're all obsessed with going to see Hamilton, weren't they? <laughs> yes, that, well, that, they were, weren't they? They were super excited about the arrival of Hamilton, um, mm. which is yeah, which is a really and that I mean that just as an aside, Hamilton is one of the most like he's one of the most dangerous figures in the American Revolution. Like he is someone who is explicit about wanting to turn North America into a, a, a you know a version of the British Empire in the New World. A bigger and better version of the British Empire, um, which is which is ruled by aristocrats and which is which is hell bent on military and political expansion. And mm. the idea that people on the centre left who kind of love love like they they see themselves as kind of on the on the on the left, the idea that they would embrace this figure never mind that he's in a musical, but the <laughs> idea that you'd embrace Hamilton as a figure of like to you know, because he's such a plucky underdog. It's like are you what are you talking about? Have you like it? Just shows a level of curiosity about ideas. It seems to me. Um, I'm out of my depth here because, like, my indifference to American politics is as strong as like the new statesman's enthusiasm. <laughs> I mean, I've, I don't know what's going on. He was such a poisonous figure that he was. I think he was killed in a duel. Um, is he? Is he the hero of this musical? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, Alexander yeah. Hamilton. He's one of the authors of the um, the Federalist Papers. Um, he's one of the architects of the, of the American Federal Constitution. Um, he was an advocate of a national bank uh, in order, you know, the national bank understood as being one of the main sort of spines of imperial expansion. An insight that was quite clearly understood in the 18th century, which we completely, we now have completely forgotten about. Um, but yeah, he was, you know, he was mu- even more than Madison. He was a straightforward um, admirer of the British Empire. Um, a quite quite unsubtle thinker, not anywhere near as interesting as Madison. But um, that's what you get with musicals, though. They do tend to be quite fairly unsubtle characters. <laughs> well, it, well, you say that, but I think you know, Little Orphan Annie is is a figure of great subtlety. Um, not to mention Mr. Mistopheles. Anyway, um, <laughs> I um, that's the limit of my knowledge of musicals. Shall we get Shall we get back to Helen? Let's talk about Helen quickly, because I want to come back briefly to her her comments on the BBC. She says, BBC, BBC bias is too big and nebulous and complex a subject to deal with, particularly online, and resolving it means sweeping organisational changes, right? It seems amazing that she could say that and not at least acknowledge that a few days before she started writing this article, presumably, Corbyn had set out a whole set of sweeping organisational changes... For the BBC mm. and for the wider media ecology, and yet, like that, that sort of it's like she's she's acknowledging the need for ins- sort of institutional change, um, but thinks she can just sort of skate over it. Um, the other thing that struck me that caught my eye when she says, um, um, that she talks about like critiques of the media, and she says. You know, don't listen to journalists because they didn't see Corbyn coming, claims the radical left. Don't listen to journalists because they didn't see Brexit coming, claims the radical right. But the whole point about those two claims is they're not... It's not about radical left or radical right. Both of those statements are true, right? Journalists didn't see Corbyn coming and they didn't see Brexit coming. The fact it's an interesting that those... use of phrase, isn't it? Like claims rather than notes. Yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, 
the and, and it, what it does is it establishes an equation between the radical left and the radical right, as though they're both in the same game of trying to delegitimize mainstream journalism, when actually the radical left is trying to do something different. It's trying to sort of re, re reorganize what what we mean by the mainstream. It's trying, it has a constructive program. Um, mm. Whereas the radical right is nihilistic, is violent, it just wants to to attack um, established authorities in pursuit of its own agenda. Anyway, um, that was that was one of the things that um, struck me. The other thing as well, finishing on the BBC, was how she completely exculpates the BBC um, for its role in um, boosting Nigel Farage after two thousand and seven. I mean, she quotes all these American studies of, of frankly, often quite dubious worth um, or dubious relevance. Um, but as Grace Blakely pointed out, she doesn't mention the financial crisis in this article, as far as I can tell, once. Right? Mm. Well, does she not? No. I just assume that she had. No, she doesn't mention austerity. She doesn't mention wage stagnation. She doesn't mention the housing crisis. These are all... See, the article was so long that in my mind I'd filled in the missing pieces by the time I got to the end. <laughs> I mean, I really... <laughs> I'm, I, was, I, I was sure that she mentioned the financial crisis and the um, parliamentary expenses scandal because like, how could you do this without not doing that? <laughs> That's, it, this is what is absolutely key to understanding the political centre at the moment, though, isn't it? It's, it's that they're idealists who pose as hard-headed realists. Um, and, and the idealism is never more pronounced than when they're avoiding any kind of material materialist discussion at all, and they can't even acknowledge one of the most kind of significant economic events in, in the history of the last century, um, which, you know, has, is, is afforded no causal role at all in this discussion. It's bizarre, isn't it? I mean, the um, idea, exactly, the idea that, oh, politicians aren't trusted anymore because of Facebook, as opposed to, say, the fact that they lied about Iraq. To get us into it's amazing this idea. Yeah, I mean that yeah. that surely is still a, it's still a live factor in people's minds, in spite of this very concerted effort by by big media to sort of shut up shut up that discussion. Right, people do remember mm. that stuff. Um, anyway, um, but yeah, like I mean, you were saying, Joe, the other the other thing that she, I mean, when she talks about the sort of, I'm interested to know what you make of this, but like. When she talks a bit about the the sort of dangers of online interaction, the limitations of these sort of platforms and stuff, and I found myself agreeing with a lot of what she said. I mean, there was another point which I'll maybe mention if we have time, where she sort of starts talking about the political economy of it and completely messes it up. But um, you know, she she does she identifies some problems with these platforms, doesn't she? Uh, but again, she doesn't really sort of know where to go with it particularly. Um, I think it's because she has to cut herself off because. And this is being generous. Maybe from a kind of pragmatic point of view, she realises that that's another article. But to make this claim that there is nothing, no kind of that online communication is extremely literal because you only have words, is seems to me a kind of arrogant and very disrespectful to the enormous amounts of research that's being done on this topic at the moment. You know, and actually, if you look at all the ways that online communication has happened and the way that its words are given nuance. Um, we have fonts, we have <laughs> text colours, we have italics, we have emboldening just to begin with, and this is going back to the 1980s. We also have uh, GIFs, we have JPEGs, we have uh, emojis now, all of these things which are used to, um, to kind of 
provide a layer of irony or, or kind of sarcasm yeah, or, she, or she something. She says you can't do that online, doesn't she? She it's, says you don't have body language and um, and sarcasm and these kinds of things that allow you to communicate the nuances of communication. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not denying that there is there is some kind of kernel of truth there, and, and but it is something that precedes the internet because people have, as long as it's existed, said the same thing about talking on the telephone. Um, the, mm. Telephone conversation lacks a particular kind of nuance because you can't see people's faces. Um, and actually, we've kind of learned to deal with that over the last 120 years or so. And I think that people are, are kind of, you know, without wanting to sound like a new statesman interview with an evolutionary scientist, we are quite quickly adaptable as a species. And, and we desire to have more nuance in conversation than just words and their assumed meaning. And therefore, we develop ways of doing it very swiftly. And so I, I think there's a real kind of glossing over that occurs there. What's more interesting is thinking about the, way, the, the kind of politics of nuance on the internet, perhaps, although that, of course, is for a much different conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's one of those kind of weird, it's like you're walking through a, a mansion and you keep on seeing doors that say, not that I spend a lot of time walking through mansions, um, but you keep us indoors, say, don't go in here. And that article is like that. There's so many kind of don't look in here because then you'll see the gaping void. That's <laughs> yeah. my argument. It's just like basically you can just go to the end of most of the paragraphs and see her sort of like going back from the conclusions and then starting something new. What did you think of her conclusion? Because she, she gets to the very end and then she says, I mean, I can read this because it's relatively short. One of the few thoughts that gives me hope, strangely enough, is the idea of sewers. Think of the internet like an early modern city which created more efficient productive communities by bringing people together into close proximity, but also allowed germs to spread unchecked. For germs, read disinformation or vitriol. <laughs> what say the city? Sewers. Our political conversation needs their modern equivalent. That's so this is this is the prescriptive section of the article. It's yeah. quite short really, and it's you know, she's got this metaphor. What's she getting at there? I don't know because she seems to have already said that the um, the internet is a kind of great cloaca of, uh, of political discourse. So um, it's saying surely, yeah, she's, she's, surely she's saying get these shitheads out of my mentions. It's, it's something like that, and I'm quite happy to do so because I, I do think that you know, for for me, what we need to be doing at the moment is well analysing the kind of the discourse of the political centre, also ignoring what they're saying because I think maybe maybe we've got to a point where it isn't going to yield that much more analysis. I feel like having just written a book on the kind of rhetoric of the political centre at the moment, I think is there much more we can say about them. Um, and maybe we need to kind of adapt to, adopt, sorry, a politics of aloofness here. Uh, you, you think um, the best strategy is just to ignore these people? It, it's possible that that is, is increasingly the case because nothing new is happening. Yeah. And because they have the, kind I think of the, that's interesting. You know, because uh, this this podcast, to some extent, kind of came out of a moment of exuberance after the election in two thousand seventeen, yeah. where the sort of centrist common sense did just fall apart. Um, and you know, Tom and I were talking over that that spring and summer about doing something. And I think you know, certainly part of what motivated me was a sense of like being able to say to all these people who've been wrong for so long. You were wrong, ha 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 ha. Yeah. And enjoy yeah, that kind of that, yeah. that, exu- that sort of the you know, the sort of exhilaration of being able to say, "You bastards! You've had so much kind of, of 
we've had so much of the bandwidth of attention and like being able to sort of dominate a conversation about politics for so long, and you've been so wrong. But you're right. It's like what what is served by kind of you know pouring over what they're up to, because increasingly it does seem that they are talking to themselves, really. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and and they're not talking to us. They don't want to talk to us. They want to make it feel like. like I, I, I'm sorry. This sounds rather paranoid, but it feels like they are trying to give the impression of opening a discourse, and then they always pull away that moment of actual discursivity. Um, it, it's never allowed to develop into into a conversation or a dialogue. Right. It just is given the appearance of one. And I think that that's true. Yeah, that, and it's interesting that they pick up bits. But so, like for example, like. The um, we were talking about the BBC thing earlier. She says, "Oh, this needs radical organisational change." Right? Nobody was talking about that in the mainstream until Corbyn said it a few days ago. Yeah. And then she just drops it in there and then just moves on. Yeah. So it's sort of yeah. like, oh, you know, you just sort of signal that, oh, this is the current conversation. Anyway, we're not going to have that conversation. But just so you're aware that I know that this conversation is going on. You know, I, when you were t- um, Jay, where you stepped on earlier, I was reminded like um, uh, Lewis Bassett had an article that was reviewing uh, um, Richard Seymour and Alex Nunn's book on Corbynism. He, the title was After the Schadenfreude, which is like an interesting sort of way of expressing what you and Dan were just talking about. It's like, mm. you know, that, that sort of delight that you can have with a political breakthrough. Yeah. Is, there anything, is there anything here to engage with? I mean, I, I'm not sure that there's... I mean, I guess we've all been surprised that this article's not as bad as we expected. But I mean, well, let me actually ask you a question, Joe. Like, did you learn much? Like, are you glad that you read this piece? I, I think I am because, as I'm trying to sort of reorient my thinking around the centre, and I'm because I'm wanting to kind of move beyond kind of euphoric cognism, as I as I call it, and have been for a while. I, I think you know, it it's been good because it's allowed me to see that there is occasionally this kind of attempt to honest thinking from the centre but that thinking must always fail because it has an unmentionable which is the material circumstances um, mm. of of the people who Corbynism is most likely to, to aid and, and help um, yeah. the, you know, when that article can be uh, uh, three, four thousand words long perhaps and not mention 2008 yeah. then you know that there is a kind of, sort of, kind of traumatic unmentionable there which just confirms yeah. what we what we all think we know about about the kind of politics of the centre, and every figure on the centre finds it impossible to discuss this stuff unless they're taking that Jason Cowley-esque route of culturalising it by saying, since the 2008 financial crisis, the people of insert small northern town here have felt very left behind by the metropolitan elite. Right. Um, should we talk? Should we talk a bit about Cowley now and his? His yeah. role in the kind of formation or the the elaboration of authenticity because he's he's quite an important figure in that regard, isn't he? Okay. Cowley is certainly somebody who has pushed a line that says the left has failed because it has stopped talking to the working classes, by which he means a rather kind of rarefied and even nebulous version of what working class means which I think is to him something like uh, 
somebody standing on a lathe in Nottingham in the in about 1957 and going to the pub and drinking seven pints of mild and you know, being in an Alan Silito novel. Um, for him, that is the people who aren't being spoken to by uh, by the Corbynite left, but by his kind of imaginary kind of uh, straw man left, if you like, before that. Um, so uh, Cowley has pushed this line, I think, that um, you need to understand the legitimate concerns of the uh, the people of Worksop or Boston or, or Louth or wherever. Um, and, uh, of course, this, I think, has been a really pernicious and damaging line in, in British politics. I mean, the, the, the platforming of uh, kind of anti-immigrant position by the centre-left media, both the New Statesman and The Guardian, and of course by the BBC as well, in the five, six, seven years running up to 2016, has to be causal in Brexit in some way, I think. Um, so, yeah, Cowley is definitely one of those figures who have attempted to use an idea of a kind of authentic working class as a way of, of um, suppressing a redistributive politics. Uh, you know, is he doing that on purpose? That's one of the questions which I sort of asked in my book and failed to answer. I think do, do these people mean it? Are they are they trying to head off uh, any kind of gesture towards socialism? Are they that attached to, to neoliberalism? Um, I, I don't really know the answer to that. I assume that some of these people are on the left and they genuinely believe that the meaning of being on the left in the last 30 years has changed. Um, I don't think I can uh, agree with them. And I, find, I struggle to take many of their claims in good faith. But if you look at the stuff that Cowley has published, it's often been... I mean, I've, I've got it open in front of me. Um, but he published an article by Mark Liller, the American... Um, thinker last year, back in last year, which was called, you know, almost totally predictably because every centre-left publication was running this article over and over again. It was a kind of cookie-cutter version of it. It's called How the Modern Addiction to Identity Politics Has Fractured the Left by Mark Miller. And, you know, within 130 words of that article beginning, Miller tells us that he is a centrist liberal. I think, okay, so why are you an authority on the fracturing of the left? if you are a centrist liberal, but then you go through it and it has these stock phrases over and over and over again that we just see in, in The Guardian so often, we see it in the New Statesman all the time, this idea that the people of the flyover states, the people of Calais, the people of Saxony, the people of uh, the uh, the Kent coast have been left behind by the left. Well, they haven't been left behind by the left. It's a ludicrous claim to make. It's a factually ludicrous claim to make. Um, and yet it's being run as a kind of almost uncontestable truth in the centre-left media. Yeah. It's a weird kind of thing, isn't it? Like, I mean, you sort of alluded to this earlier, that a lot of this stuff is actually coming from people who are sort of of the social class and type that they're sort of attacking. You know, like, yeah. do, do you think... I mean, that, that's got to be significant, hasn't it? That like, they're that these people are moving in these sorts of circles. I mean, I don't know about Cowley's own sort of personal class background. Um, I mean, I, I think he's sort of compre- he's comprehensive. He is comprehensive than Jason Cowley. Um, yeah. Um, so I don't know. That could mean all kinds of different things, I suppose. But um, a, a lot of the... I mean, I was thinking like 
the sort of literary figures. There's been a lot of literary yeah. figures involved in this, hasn't there? Um, and and Jason Cowley has a background in um, literary criticism or whatever. Um, what do what do you think is the significance of that in this kind of um, this kind of politics? Oh, I think I think Bloomsbury got brought up earlier, but I think that more. A more defining context for the modern new statesman is the kind of what I call the McCamus world of, of the mainstream of contemporary British literary fiction or, or the kind of British literary scene of the 80s and 90s. All, all of these people, Nick Cohen um, and Cowley and so on, they, you know, Cowley might come from, I think it's Harlow he comes from, maybe, or Brentwood, but he might come from there. But <laughs> think of that advert, which is from Carlisle, but I was formed in the Royal Navy. Um, but Jason Cowley is like a number of these other people. He, was, he might be from Brentwood, but he was formed in, in the gay Hussar, which is, of course, this um, restaurant, this uh, Central European restaurant, or, or was, I think, I can't remember, it's still open in, in Soho, which was the kind of the place that everybody on the kind of left and centre left hung out from, what was it, from the 50s onwards. Um, and they sat there having very long lunches, eating goulash, drinking tons of red wine. Um, and, and having these, uh, I suppose, Hitchens-esque contrarian conversations. Um, and it is yeah. that, that is the kind of tone of, of British intellectual culture as embodied in, in British literature of the last 30 or 40 years, this kind of tutting contrarianism, you know. Yeah. Uh, mm. I, I think, I don't know if you've noticed, but the collection of uh, Christopher Hitchens' essays is called something like, is it called Ambiet or something like it's that? It's arguably, isn't it? I think one's called arguably, and I think there is another one called something like and yet, and you hear it, don't you? You hear that tone of voice. And yet, (laughs) the left are wrong. The the, the left's assumptions are wrong. Um, And yet, dot, dot, dot. And yet, dot, 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 yeah. As you talk, I'm I'm reminded of an interesting piece that Mark Names wrote about Corbyn in the Sunday Times. Yeah, absolutely. 2015. And it's exactly, you're absolutely on the money. He was talking about like the witty badinage that would take place in the new states and offices in the seventies and eighties, yeah, where they're 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 kind of as as men of letters, their elevation above the petty doctrinaire world of these small Marxist groups, completely, was yeah, a, was a sign of their sort of intellectual distinction and of their kind of raffishness and and their sort of mm. like their yeah, they they really preen themselves on on not buying into um, any kind of sort of schematic leftism. And uh, uh, it's all about being above it all, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and like... McEwen is is exactly the same. I'm actually writing a, a piece which I've been writing for a couple of years and never get around to finishing about the way that this sort of like centrist um, intellectual culture kind of dovetails with British literary fiction. I, Sorry, are you still guys still there? Sorry. Yeah, no, yeah. we're still here. Yeah, just no, double checking. Just... Um, and one of the things I find is that if you are um, Martin Amos or Ian McEwen and you're talking about politics, you have to make reference to Hamlet. Uh, so Ian McEwen writes this novel, Nutshell, uh, which is a kind of ridiculous rewriting of Hamlet. Huh. Um, Amos makes various references to, to being kind of Hamlet-like figure in his autobiography and it's this huge celebration of political indecision right. and not being able to figure out what you know what you should do and that's somehow being a virtue indecision is a virtue when it comes to politics and also presumably uh, sort of radical solitude right 
I mean, yes, absolutely. The yeah. idea that politics might be a collective endeavor is sort of it is is completely disparaged and dismissed. And yeah. this is partly yeah. why I think they make such a fetish of Orwell, because you know Orwell is ruthless in sort of eradicating the the as it were the means of production. He sort of famously um, wrote out all the people who helped him in his uh, in in the, in the writing of the Road to Wigan Pier who were coming yeah, out of yeah. a, a radical Labour tradition, um, who were there, and they were basically giving him the story. Um, but he wrote it up as this sort of pioneering, solitary intelligence. That yeah, absolutely. See, yeah. see through the camp of, um, of, his, of his times. And I think that idea that to be alone is to be honest in political terms mm. Mm. Um, yeah. is such a kind of, it's such a misunderstanding of the nature of political agency. Um, yeah. And and such a like such a monumental mistake. It's such a distraction. Um, but it is kind it of saturates the statesman, doesn't it? That that attitude, which is is weird, because on one hand you have this kind of like increasing devotion to sort of communitarian um, communitarianism for others, politics. right? It's other people who have their charming folk ways, right? But they yes. don't. They don't. <laughs> fucking, so true, yeah. They don't have to That's put bizarre. up with that sort of you know that fancy fucking. Coronation Street bullshit that they that they're mm. so keen of at a distance. You know, but the they, individualism comes in with their distinction from the other metropolitan left, doesn't it? So that that's the thing that makes them the lone voice. It's not so they're saying, yeah, these other people have their sort of communitarian kind of um, old fashioned cultural values. The difference between me and the, is that I'm apart from them, but I'm also apart from the sort of liberal group think as um some journalists call it that's yeah and that's how they sort of maintain the two but you're right it's just a, it's kind of just a bizarre irony really but it's i've always wondered you know why a lot of these intellectuals seem i mean on the one hand there's that sort of sense of being aloof but then there's the fact that they all think the same way as well and they yeah. all just copy each other <laughs> and, and even quote each other there's a really bizarre bit in that Helen, Helen lewis piece where she just drops in a quotation from jonathan friedland Having sure, I thought it was amazing. Academics. That, yeah. but she's like, she's gone through these various professors and she was like, and as Jonathan Frieden said in The Guardian, it's just like, hold on a sec, that's not, that's, that's not the same thing. That's somebody your friends with who's just said something. Like, yeah. You know, it's kind of, it's just bizarre. Yeah, it they're, is all... they're very self celebrating, aren't they? I think. Um, yeah, I, I think that's fair. <laughs> that's a fair thing to say. But as you say as well, this, this lack of. of... An ability to look steadily at anything approaching a material explanation for anything gives the writing often, ironically, kind of a family resemblance to conspiratorial writing in that it just seems to be completely arbitrary what evidence she adduces and the yeah. way that she develops lines of thought. It's just like, there seems to be no, there's no sort of structure there at all that I mm. can make sense of. And yet, obviously, within that within that worldview, conspiracism is sort of disparaged almost on literary critical grounds. It's like, it's not a very good story, boring, you know. Um, and yet, it, it's so much of what they end up producing has that kind of, that sort of fugue state that you get in conspiratorial writing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, conspiratorial writing, it, its epistemology is kind of one of endless regress, isn't it? There's always something behind something, behind something, behind something, behind something. Yeah. Um, where and it's sort of opposite but the same. There's some kind of negative dialectic here. Um, if you if you look at the kind of writing of the centre, its epistemology 
always comes down to things just being good, but you don't or bad, but you don't have to explain why. Um, yeah, but again, and, you see, you know, there are these. Sort, there is this sort of murky, this murky sort of physics or that you know yeah. murky spatiality that you get in conspiracies. I mean, Helen's piece where she says she says things like the root, the roots of the malaise are deeper. <laughs> and things like that, and it's she like, does. and yeah. it's it's there's always a sort of like you say it goes you go down deeper down the rabbit hole, and you find out it's Facebook, and then you find out it's Russia, and then you find out, <laughs> then you find out it's Facebook, and then you find out it's the need for recognition, and then you find out that an American says that it's something else. You know what I mean? It's like it's like mm. what the fuck is it then? Yeah, um, it's a blue pill, and you will discover that you need metaphorical sewers. It's so it's so kind of formally similar to looking at Paul Joseph Watson now, isn't it? And, and uh, the the kind of investigative reporting of, of Carol Edwalda, um around around the Russia issue has become this enormous touchstone for for uh, centrists in Britain and America, and they've completely lost the plot. It's, um, it's so easy to satirise this fixation of Russia now as well as the, the kind of explanation for everything. Oh, the tap's not working. Well, it's Putin's doing it, isn't he? Um, it's like you were saying, I mean, I suppose, like you said earlier, Joe, like, uh, uh, this is basically rooted in this sort of idealism, isn't it? And yeah. I think that's kind of, that kind of breeds, that idealism seems to also breed a sort of contrarianism because you start to believe that what the politics is about the differences of kind of, of our ideas basically. And then that seems to lead to this sort of like, yeah, quite belligerent contrarianism where people never really, cause you're not really rooted in um, any kind of, yeah, real account of what's going on in the world or society. Everything just seems to be about like competing ideas mm-hmm. that, which, which is kind of the weird thing, you know, I, I suppose it's none of the paradox of these centrists who we said we should stop talking about, is the combination yeah. of saying you should be civil, but also getting, like, furiously angry with people yeah. um, all the time, you know. Yeah. Um, but I suppose part of that is, like you're saying, you said earlier, is, is having this sort of sense of losing grip on what's going on politically. And that, again, is seems to me to be a symptom of this sort of, idealism yeah, yeah. you know where are these where are these wrong ideas coming from you know mm-hmm. just getting furiously angry at the circulation of wrong ideas and then you know with facebook you, you're sort of start, starting to um in this piece sort of gesture towards something like a materialist analysis which is at least looking at the kind of um let's say the sort of communicative infrastructure to try and get a sense of what's going on but again it just never really goes anywhere and you just end up with this kind of sense that Oh, wrong ideas are are polluting the the public sphere, and they're coming from Russia. They're coming from Trump. They're coming from Corbyn, and we need to flush it out. I mean, going back mm. to her sewers point at the end, like she says, the germs are the problem, right? So the germs are disinformation. But then the question becomes: Then what is the shit, right? Yeah. What's producing the germs? And I can only surmise from this that uh, the shit is people she doesn't agree with yeah that's isn't it because on the political right they're totally unashamed about kind of making a a sort of baseline claim about what it is that's bad um so you read kind of right-wing discourse and and they will say we know that the problem is yeah we know who is scapegoated in right-wing discourse now the problem is for the center that they want to be able to pull off the same kind of gesture of certainty but they aren't allowed to scapegoat um, so it just comes down to my ideas or these kind of nebulous um, 
kind of technological culprits like Facebook. You know, it's, it's Facebook. And I said, well, is it is it really? Well, um, so yeah, it's it's a very kind of purest form of idealism in that sense. Mm. It just doesn't want to, almost doesn't want to talk about individuals, um, apart from Corbyn and Trump, <laughs> um, and Putin. Yeah, of course, Putin. Yeah, well, he doesn't. I don't. Who to Helen's credit, I don't think gets mentioned um, in this piece. To be fair. Okay, that's interesting. He does talk about the Russians. Yeah. I think. He talks about the Russians fiddling, fiddling about on Facebook. Oh, did they? Sorry, I forgot. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, Clearly, I can only hold about like a thousand words uh, article in my head at one time. So, um, yeah, no, that I suppose that would have been surprising. But then I would believe anything after the fact that she didn't mention... Um, oh, no, you're quite right. Russian election interference is mentioned here, actually. Yeah, there's a bit of that going on. Anyway, um, it was, um, it's a puzzling thing. And I think, you know, Joe, you perhaps helped us draw a line on the exuberant Corbynism. <laughs> you know, perhaps we should stop jumping up and down and laughing at centrism. Um, because... You know their day is kind of done, um, and you know maybe it's us. It's up to us. I mean, you you made a really interesting point earlier. You know about what to what extent they are aware that they're dismissing material material explanations, whether they're what sort of sincerity there is. And I think for a lot of these people, I think they committed to the idea that deep transformation for the better in society was impossible. Um, it was all about yeah. ma- managing a capitalist system humanely, um, having the right kinds of people in charge, um, people who were decent. Decency was a very important quality um, that uh, that kind of Houston um, era left uh, harped on. And the idea that you might be able to collectively strive for a program of social transformation just struck people, I think, in the in the in the kind of Blair era and beyond, as being just a form of of absurdity. So yeah, go, they they cringed at it, didn't they? That's they found right. it uh, gauche and uh, and embarrassing. I yeah, think. exactly. And I think that they saw it as, as you say, embarrassing, as as ridiculous, um, as something that would be an, an electoral liability. If the moment you hinted that things might be different. Uh, you would be you'd be toast. The right wing press would crucify you, and so on. Um, and we are at a point now where I think there is a transformative energy abroad. The people do want to look at the fundamentals of social organisation. They do want to work collectively to change them. And it's perhaps time to draw draw you know a, a kind of polite silence over the um, over the remnants of that tradition that. <clears throat> It's clinging to a kind of depressive realism about what's possible. Yeah, that's how I feel now. It's kind of important to to kind of understand that position and and even maybe to to occasionally attempt some dialogue with it, Um, but also to realise that that's unlikely to happen and and that it's a... it's a kind of ideology which is flailing around in, in as I said, a kind of traumatised state. It, it, it doesn't know what to do with itself. Now its epistemology has turned out to be very wrong. Yeah. Um, so there was a kind of moment when triumphalism felt appropriate. But now to kind of keep on going back over these these arguments with these people feels like going, you know, it, it, 
it's a kind of dangerous repetition. Um, well, that's, and that's and right. could, I mean, on, on some level, point towards. I don't know what it is. A kind of anxiety about how, in the British case, Corbynism now moves forward and, and what what can now be done. Yeah, I think as well. There's a danger that you know that, that there's a preoccupation isn't there with trolling and incivility, uh, in in the centre, and I think there is a danger of being trolled by them. In that, uh, yeah, they are increasingly, I think, taking positions in order to attract. Um, furious brickbats on Twitter. Uh, uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, and and as you say, there's a kind of there's a sort of pretense at wanting to have a dialogue, but in fact, just really wanting to rile rile up the um, you know what they see as a sort of Corbynite um, fanatics. Um, and again, these this is this is energy that perhaps we should turn elsewhere. I feel like we're at the New Statesman's funeral now. <laughs> well, you know. I you know I've I've been thinking for a while you know Fabianism is supposed to be a, a gradual path to socialism. Um, they've had more than a hundred years to try their approach. They haven't got there. So you're calling time. I'm calling time on Fabianism. Calling time on the New Statesman. <laughs> they can all fuck off. Do something more useful. Joe, thank you. I'm, I'm I'm glad I spent a bit of time just to uh, to to have a good read of it and make sure that I wasn't missing out. Well, I read three copies of it because I kept getting the dates wrong. So I've been <laughs> I've been immersed. So you can be pretty sure that you made the right decision. I've yeah. been immersed in New Statesman for three whole weeks now, um, and I would like them to go back to an occasional presence on Twitter. Um, I think I'm go and read the rest of my New Statesman now. I've paid £4.50 for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. get your money's worth, absolutely. But, um, so, the, the then after then, you've got to go completely cold turkey. <laughs> um, Joe, thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, uh, thanks for having me. Tell our readers, our listeners, tell, tell our listeners again about your, your book and um, where they can find it. Uh, where can they find it? They can probably find it on the internet. Yay! <laughs> and, um, and also in some bookshops, although not, never the bookshops that I go in to vainly look for copies of it, um, vainly in both senses. I was going to say, there. that was a very nimble use of the word vainly. If you find one, then get in touch with Joe so that he can go to the bookshop. Yes, photograph <laughs> photograph a copy of Joe's book in the wild and send it to the Media Democrat Twitter account, um, thereby proving that people listen to the whole whole show, which would be, be fascinating to find out if anyone's got to the end. Um, I, I, I'm told that occasionally there are copies in City Books in Hove, uh, which which excites me. But but having just moved out of Brighton to to the other side of Brighton, at least I, I rarely get in City Books anymore. Um, but, uh, I, I can never find it in Waterstones. That's a tip for would-be readers. You may find the copy in Hove. Who knows? <laughs> um, um, if not, I'm sure there are online retailers that will um, that will help. Go to the Repeater Books website would be uh, the place to, to start, I think. Yeah. Um, you can go to my author page on, on the Repeater Books website. Um, that's fantastic. Okay. Thanks again for joining us, Joe. And Thanks, um, yes. we'll be back hopefully next week, but let's be realistic, probably in a couple of weeks' time.